Hello and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. I'm happy you're with us today on 99.5 FM WBAI. I'm your host, David Brand, joined remotely by my co-host Jeff Simmons and news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. You were just listening to Con Sabor Latino, completely live. Uh, nice job by Max Schmid in the studio. And Giovanni. We're contending with an unprecedented challenge right now in New York City and the surrounding area, with many of us isolated in our homes. Others are braving the COVID-19 outbreak to go to work, doing the jobs that keep our city running. We thank you. We're all in this together, and I'm happy you decided to join us today. We have a great show featuring three guests who will each discuss how various systems are handling, or in some cases mishandling, the outbreak. Public defender, activist, and former candidate for Queens District Attorney Tiffany Caban will join us to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the city jails and the effort to free people from confinement. Journalist Maya Kaufman of Queens Patch will discuss the pressure on Elmhurst Hospital, which has emerged as the epicenter of the health crisis. And Barbara Hughes, the executive director of City Beat Kitchen, will describe how her staff, including several formerly homeless New Yorkers, are showing up for work every day to prepare meals for nonprofit sites, including shelters around the city. But first, we have a news update from our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Here's the news. Coronavirus deaths could reach as many as 200,000 in the United States, according to one of the nation's top experts. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told CNN's State of the Union Sunday that he expected millions of cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., but that predictions are only as good as the assumptions fed into the models used to make those guesses. Looking at what we're seeing now, you know, I would say between 100 and 200,000 cases, but I don't want to be held to that because it's, it's, it's excuse me, deaths. I mean, we're going to have millions of cases, but I, I just don't think that we really need to make a projection when it's such a moving target that you can so easily be wrong and mislead people. What we do know, Jake, is that we got a serious mm-hmm. problem in New York. We have a serious problem in New Orleans, and we're going to be developing serious problems in other areas. Fauci said speculating on worst and best case scenarios isn't as good as focusing on the hard data that's being collected on the outbreak. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has directed non-essential state employees to continue working from home for an additional two weeks, or through April 15th. He has also directed the continuation of restrictions on other businesses and gathering places until April 15th. Those include malls, barbershops and salons, gyms, theaters, bars and restaurants. At a news conference, Cuomo said the number of coronavirus cases in New York State had climbed by nearly 7,200 to more than 59,000 in 44 counties. These are the overall numbers, 59,000 people tested positive, 8,000 currently hospitalized, 2,000 ICU patients, 3,500 patients discharged. We know, but we, nobody really uh, points to these numbers, but this is good news. 846 people came out of hospitals yesterday discharged uh, after being treated for COVID, right? So, yes. Uh, people get it. 80% have uh, either self-resolved or have some symptoms at home. 20% go into the hospital. Majority of those get treated and leave. It's the acutely ill, by and large, 
who are the vulnerable population. And that's what we're seeing more and more. The deaths went from 728 to 965. Cuomo also announced that the state's Wadsworth Lab has created a new, less intrusive test for COVID-19. The test involves a short nasal swab and a saliva sample and can be done in the presence of a single health care worker. The test will go into use within a week. Cuomo spoke as the U.S. Navy ship Comfort, a hospital vessel, was headed up the East Coast from Norfolk, Virginia, to its temporary berth at Manhattan's Pier 90. The ship is expected to arrive on Monday. For pandemic updates from the New York City Department of Emergency Management, text COVID, C-O-V-I-D, to 692-692. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, David Brand. Thank you, Celeste. Rikers Island and other New York City jails have been hit hard by the COVID-19 outbreak, as more and more detainees and jail staff have tested positive for the illness. There are disturbing reports about unsanitary conditions compounding at the jails where staff don't want to clean because they risk exposing themselves to the coronavirus. Detainees are packed together. And they say they have minimal supplies to clean themselves. The rate of infection in city jails is about nine times higher than the citywide rate, and it's getting worse, according to inmates and their advocates. There's a major effort to urge Mayor Bill de Blasio, Governor Andrew Cuomo, the state court system, and New York City's five district attorneys to consent to release thousands of people behind bars to prevent what is becoming a public health catastrophe. Our next guest is one of the leading voices in that effort. Tiffany Caban is a public defender and a criminal justice reform advocate who ran for the Democratic nomination for Queens DA in 2019. Her message of radical reform galvanized many people throughout Queens and across the country. After an extremely close election, which resulted in Queens' first countywide recount since 1964, Caban fell just 55, shorts of, 55 votes short of victory. She remains a staunch advocate, however, and on Wednesday she took some time to talk with me about the effort to free New Yorkers from city jails during this public health crisis. Here's that interview. Tiffany Caban, thank you for joining us on City Watch. Thanks for having me. So what do you think about how the city, the state, uh, the various district attorneys have responded to the COVID-19 crisis in jails and prisons? I mean, to, to put it really simply to start, the response has been a failure. And um, I think that that failure is, when you zoom out and, and look at the larger picture, is directly tied to how we view our systems, how we view what produces safety, and it, it really lays bare what our priorities are. And seeing that, I, that obviously our priorities are, are in the wrong places. Where do you think the priorities should be? So... A good example, I'll, I'll say this, right? Like a good example is um, Tessa Boudin in, in San Francisco or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Like these were some of the first folks to respond to meet the moment and like move to rapidly decarcerate. And it was natural for them because everything that they do is rooted in getting the best public health and public safety outcomes. So they have the mentality of if it saves lives, it's worth doing. And the systems we have in place here, they're designed and led to focus on state control and punishment. And so like that is, that's what we've seen, right? So what we have going on here in New York City, so we have thousands of people on Rikers accused of crimes who are presumed innocent, right? We have um, people who are serving city sentences for low level offenses. We have people who are jailed for technical parole violations with potential death sentences hanging over their heads. 
but we don't have the death penalty in, in New York, right? Like even for the most heinous crimes, because we have agreed that that is cruel and unusual punishment. Yet, yet here we are. And, and the, the, the last example I'll give is, you know, recently the commissioner of the NYPD said, hey, we had 2,000 cops call out sick, but, like, don't worry, everybody, because we're still able to fully staff our, our shifts. Yet we don't have safe staffing in our hospitals or our schools. Mm. And so, you know, immediately my thought is, well, maybe we should have never had that many police officers in the, in, in the first place, right? Mm. Um, and really evaluating our resources, our, our mindset, um, and and what the goals of our, our systems are. And when you talk when you talk about the death sentence or the virtual death sentence, are you talking about people who are in state prisons serving virtual uh, life sentences because they're not eligible per, for parole or eligible for parole for many years? Or are you also talking about people in jails right now who maybe are serving small sentences or are in pretrial detention? but are facing the risk of this really serious illness. I'm talking about the, the risk. I, I think folks know from where I stand, from my run and the work that I do, that not only do I not believe in the death penalty, I don't believe in death by incarceration, I don't believe in, in life without parole um, sentences, but like looking at this pandemic, um, anybody who contracts the virus uh, it's a potential death sentence for them. We're seeing it from from public health experts, from medical experts, that it isn't even just limited to folks that we generally think are, are especially vulnerable, older folks and things. But we're seeing younger people um, succumb to the virus as well. One thing that I have heard almost every day from my, my public defender family, right, my, my former coworkers, is um, that if not for bail, like they, they tell me bail reform, which I think is unconscionable that we're talking about possibly rolling it back, especially now, that bail reform is one of the only things saving their clients' lives. There's no way to social distance in jails. Um, you know, none of these things should result in a, in a potential death sentence. And it's wild to see that doctors on Rikers are actually speaking out publicly. We have all known that public health within our jail system is, is horrendous, right? It is not up to par. It's not nearly good enough. Um, but for the first time ever, we are having Rikers doctors do these Twitter threads and come out and, and talk to the press, and it's totally unprecedented. They're, in a lot of ways, like the canaries in, in the coal mine. You know, they're saying you need to release these people and you need to release them now because – People are going to die. And like, in, in all honesty, at, at the rate that we have been moving, it, we may be too late, right? Mm. And you're talking about the Twitter thread by, I think, Ross McDonald, the head of uh, Correctional Health Services, correct? That generated yes. a lot of attention talking about yes. the need to reduce the number of people on Rikers and in city jails immediately. You mentioned bail reform, and I think it's easy to, for, easy to forget now, but a few weeks ago, it seemed like bail reform was the top issue for many New Yorkers, especially in political circles. Um, the state eliminated bail on misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies as part of the last budget, and that law took effect on January 1st. But immediately there was a backlash from not just conservative lawmakers, but from moderate Democrats, definitely from the media. Um, a lot of newspapers, tabloids were eager to run like bail fail stories about uh, why, the, why they said the, the measure wasn't working. The governor and the mayor have criticized the law, and, and so has the Senate Majority Leader, who, act, who championed it last year. Um, you went to Albany to rally in support 
of the bail reform law a few weeks ago. Why did you do that? Because it was when when that package passed, and not just bail, right? Talking about speedy trial and discovery um, in in its totality, it was transformative. It was life changing. It was life saving in a lot of ways. Um, the folks that have rallied or fought against these reforms, they're a combination of people who, uh, one, invest in, profit, or thrive in our prison industrial complex, whether it is, you know, law enforcement, the bail bond industry, um, things like that, or people who have simply had the privilege of not being intimately touched by our systems. If you work on the front lines in our criminal legal system, if you are a black or brown, a poor New Yorker that has touched our system, that has lived in communities that are over-policed, you know, over-criminalized, resource-starved, you know exactly what these things do. And for every, you know, sensationalized story, which also a lot of the time we ended up found, like finding out that there was a lot of irresponsible reporting taking place and, and a lot of mm-hmm. things being debunked. But for that, there were hundreds and thousands of stories of people just being able to get back to their, their lives. You know, as a public defender, um, other people might be surprised to know that one of the most determinative things in a case is not the strength of the case, it's not the amount of evidence, it's, it's not any of those things. It's what happens when your client sees the judge for the very first time, when everybody in the room has the least amount of information about the case, that is the most important moment, whether your client gets to fight their case from the inside of a jail cell or from the outside. Understanding that, you know, the majority of cases when you're able to fight from the outside, able to to keep your your job, your, your family connections, your stability, not only are you less likely to touch the system again, but you get a better outcome, whether your case is dismissed, whether you get a more appropriate um, disposition, whether it's a, uh, an alternative to incarceration disposition. Uh, and I think one important stat to point out when it comes to the bail reform is that when you look at the offenses that are no longer bail eligible and you go back a year, right, 90% of those cases were resolved with non-jail, non-incarceratory dispositions. So if you were too poor to buy your freedom, you lost everything. You faced irreparable harms, yet at the end of the day, everyone involved agreed that a jail sentence wasn't appropriate. And that wasn't justice in any way. And it destabilized people's lives, it destabilized entire communities, and made entire communities less safe, not more safe. Um, So the reforms are incredibly, incredibly important. I'm proud of the coalition that continues to fight for them, and we're all going to continue to fight for them. A couple more questions, because we have a few more moments here. You ran for Queens District Attorney, and you were very close to winning. How do you think the current DA and their administration is doing? I'll say what I said at the the beginning of the interview. Uh, We have not acted fast enough. We have not acted to save lives. And everyone from our DAs to our judges, to our mayor, to the commissioner of the NYPD is responsible. We can, you know, we literally will be able to measure these responses in lives lost. Um, So I, I think that it is really incumbent upon our DAs, including our DA here in Queens, to say, hey, we're going to decline to prosecute. 
the majority of cases. We're going to presume release. We're going to work with defenders to get people um, out of, of jails and back into their communities, into homes. There are so many services available that are ready to take people in. Fortune Society is saying, hey, we're open. We're providing services. We're seeing all of these really beautiful mutual aid networks set up all around the city. Like, we are ready to take in and take care of our own. Um, and the job of the DA is to get the best public health and public safety outcomes, and we are not doing that. We are not acting quickly enough. Um, we should be working from the mindset of, like, we presume that we need to release everyone, and then from there, um, you know, make these individual determinations about whether or not somebody should be. It's actually the process that's happening in New Jersey because we simply don't have time, right? And what's happening here is the opposite. They're going and, and picking piece by piece who they, they think, you know, could get out, deserves to get out um, when we need to invert that, again, because lives literally depend on it. A few months ago, you began a job with the Working Families Party to work on campaigns for progressive DA and prosecutor, prosecutor candidates uh, across the country. You had a temporary contract, though. Are you still doing that work, and what are you working on now? I'm still doing it. I love it. I, I, I mean, I'm able to, to continue to do community organizing here in Queens, um, but the work with uh, with the Working Families Party has felt incredibly aligned. So I help with recruitment and supporting of um, progressive DAs. Really, really proud of some of the work that we did. You know, we did a little bit of work on um, Chase Boudin's race, uh, most recently um, Kim Fox's reelection. Really excited about our win in, um, in Travis County, so in Austin, Texas, with Jose Garza. He won the popular vote. Um, based on their rules, there's a runoff now, so we're we're uh, working to to push him over the the finish line. Um, it feels it's been really incredible because it it has felt like an opportunity to take what we fought for on my campaign, the the values, the theory of change, the lens, and we're scaling it nationally. It's pretty incredible to see that places all around the country. Are, are ready for these change, communities are demanding these changes, and we're doing what we can to support campaigns to, to get them over the finish line so that they can, you know, experience um, what it, it means to have a progressive DA, what it means to have a decarceral DA, what it means to divest from, from carceral solutions and invest in community solutions. Right now it's a little bit challenging because we're all doing this, everybody doing electoral work is doing this shift of like, okay, well, what's this virtual campaigning um, look like and, and kind of reassessing what tools we're going to use and, and the, the length to which the, they use those tools. But it's been really, really good work that I'm proud of. What office do you have your eye on? What, what's going to be your next move? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I started feeling so much better when I stopped thinking about a particular office. I felt really, really good about just taking it sort of like day by day, week by week. And as long as I'm feeling really aligned with how I'm moving, um, I think that I, I certainly will not say I'm, I'm not going to do it again. Um, but if it feels aligned, if it feels right, I'll, I'll absolutely run again. What it will be for, I don't know. Well, I guess we will wait and see. Tiffany Caban, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI's City Watch. That was my interview recorded Wednesday with Tiffany Caban, public defender, activist, and former candidate for Queens District Attorney. Her justice reform message resonated with a lot of voters in 2019 and brought her within 55 votes of the Democratic nomination for Queens DA.
You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's City Watch, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand, joined by my co-host, Jeff Simmons, and news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. Since that interview with Tiffany Caban, Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered the release of 600 people being held on technical parole violations in New York City jails. Those violations are administrative offenses like missing curfew or showing up late for an appointment that often result in reincarceration. But it's hard to know exactly how many detainees have been released from Rikers and other city jails over the past week. As of Friday, there were 375 people released, according to the mayor's office. Activists and several local lawmakers, however, have had issue with how the city is portraying those numbers, and even the Board of Correction, the nine-member commission that oversees city jails, cannot get the exact total. The Legal Aid Society, the city's largest public defender organization, has an online tool for tracking the rate of COVID-19 infection in city jails. On Saturday night, there were 132 people who were, had tested positive for COVID-19 and were staying in city jails. That's a rate of about 28 cases per 1,000 people, a rate that's nine times higher than the overall rate of infection in New York City. The city has far more cases than anywhere else in the country, and the city's most impacted borough is Queens, where nearly 10,000 people had COVID-19 as of 6 p.m. Saturday night. Queens accounts for about a third of the city's confirmed cases. I've been covering the crisis in Queens with my colleagues at the Queens Eagle, and there's been a lot of great coverage from other Queens publications as well, including from our next guest, Maya Kaufman, a reporter with Queens Patch. Earlier this week, Maya broke news about the extreme burden at Elmhurst Hospital, a city-run medical center in Elmhurst, Queens, that serves as a safety net for many low-income people and people without health insurance, especially immigrants. The hospital is located in one of the most diverse areas in the entire country and has emerged as the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis, the hardest-hit hospital in the hardest-hit borough in the hardest-hit city in the country. Maya talked with me Saturday about what has been going on there. Maya Kaufman, reporter for Queens Patch, welcome to WBAI's City Watch. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Maya, you broke the story on the COVID-19 crisis at Elmhurst Hospital, which has become the epicenter of the outbreak in New York City and the entire country, really, at this point. Tell us what's going on at Elmhurst Hospital. So at the beginning of this week, we started getting really alarming statistics from inside Elmhurst Hospital on how overburdened they are with COVID-19 patients. It's basically taken over the hospital, and we know that at least at the beginning of this week, they were operating well over 125% capacity, which is way above what they're normally doing, which is about 80, I've been told. So the medical workers are, are basically overrun with COVID patients. They're having way more deaths in a day than they may have seen in the past. And further reporting has really added to that understanding by showing the refrigerated truck that came outside to serve as a as a morgue for all of the people who are dying. And we've seen videos and photos of people snaked around the block outside Elmhurst Hospital waiting to get screened for coronavirus symptoms that they're experiencing. Is there, there's a testing tent outside of the hospital, right? 
Yeah, it's basically a triage tent, and we're starting to see those pop up at more and more hospitals. So Elmhurst now, in that sense, isn't even an anomaly, and that's where they're examining patients who aren't severe enough to go right through the emergency room and be admitted immediately. You had mentioned more patients dying there. I think you had reported that there was about 12 who died, was it like Monday to Tuesday? And then the next day, many different publications were reporting 13. So was that is that 25 people just in the span of about two days? So the difficulty in reporting all of this is that hospitals aren't reporting with any regularity statistics on how many beds are taken, how many people are dying, um, how many COVID patients that they have. And so reporters like myself are left to try and fill in the gaps with that. And so I was told by uh, a source who was briefed on the, on the situation at Elmhurst Hospital that overnight Monday, they had had 12 deaths and we don't know the exact time period they were using to measure that. Um, it's something that the hospital has disputed, but then shortly thereafter, the hospital released a statement to myself, to the New York Times and other reporters that they had seen 13 people die in a 24-hour period, which appeared to be Tuesday to Wednesday, although they didn't offer specifics. So that's what we know. Uh, Dr. Katz, who's the, hel- uh, the head of the um, health and hospital system in New York, uh, later said that they had seen only four deaths uh, overnight following those really severe numbers. So those are the numbers that we have, but it's pretty incomplete. And hopefully the city will start to release more information soon so we can actually get a full picture of what's happening inside our hospitals. It just seems like there's so much uncertainty when it comes to uh trying to determine just how many people are affected. And I I think see this at the hospitals, but also see this in the jails and how many people are being released, how many people are eligible for release uh, immediately. And I think there's very little consistency. Is Is that the sense you're getting from the city, from the state, from different agencies and institutions? There's a lot of difficulty here because the numbers and the facts are changing so quickly. And even inside hospitals, guidance is changing really quickly as the situation is evolving. So one of the challenges that we have is keeping up with the numbers, trying to understand um, how everything is being measured, what time frames are being used, um, whether you know the staffers that they're adding are uh, it's a cumulative total or it's a new set of people who are coming, where they're coming from. And there's really a lot of uncertainty right now because everything is changing so quickly. What's driving the surge of patients at Elmhurst in particular? So we don't have a full picture yet of that, but some of the speculation has been that people in the neighborhood um, in Elmhurst or in Jackson Heights are living in crowded apartments where they're not able to do much social distancing. Um, There's a lot of people who speak very many different languages in that neighborhood. So maybe they didn't even know what social distancing was beforehand. That was a report that came out in the Jackson Heights Post, uh, citing one doctor talking about that. 
and the patients, at least at Elmhurst Hospital, um, as far as we've seen, I've been told are, are mostly local. Mm. And they're, yeah, and we're seeing a lot of Latino patients, we're seeing a lot of South Asian patients, but of all ages. So when you say the information not reaching them because of the different languages, uh, like the, the information wasn't being translated into languages that they would be able to understand and because social distancing in itself, that's kind of a new made up term that I, I imagine doesn't translate very well as a direct translation. Is that is that what you're saying about about the different languages? Right. That was what um, a doctor had said in one news report as something that they had experienced in talking to patients. But right now we have more speculation than certainty at this point because, again, it's changing so, so rapidly. And we don't have the full data set to really understand if Elmhurst Hospital is an anomaly or if it's really just getting a lot of attention and it's actually indicative of a very large trend, which the mayor has already indicated seems to be the case coming up very soon that most hospitals will will look like that versus not. Wow. Yeah, I guess sometimes uh, attention can be kind of self-perpetuating. And if you had broken this story on this crisis and then a lot of other publications followed up on your reporting and then uh, imagine there's similar or other places on the verge of having similar situations. So, you know, everyone has their eyes on Elmhurst now, but what are some of the aspects of the crisis that aren't receiving the same level of coverage and that you have been reporting on or, or you think people should be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. So Elmhurst Hospital definitely is very overburdened and that's something that Mayor de Blasio had been saying in radio interviews and to the press for a little over a week now. And it was a place that we knew to to keep a watch over. But there's definitely indications that hospitals across the city and across Queens are experiencing similar situations. And I've heard um, from a nurse in in another hospital that are having similar situations with um, having an influx of COVID patients that's basically taking over the hospital. They are not having enough medical workers to take care of it. Their morgues are overflowing. And we're seeing this every day more and more. I think I think Elmhurst Hospital got attention because of what the mayor was saying, but also it's one of just two city hospitals in Queens, which already doesn't have as much hospital coverage as other boroughs. Yeah, talk about that a little more. I think there's there's ten hospitals in, in all of Queens serving about two point three million people, right? And there's been in the, over the past maybe fifteen years, there's been several hospitals that have closed. How how is that impacting this situation? Sure. So in Queens already, we have a couple hospitals that are empty because they've they've closed um, in the past number of years. And right now, according to the Queensboro President's Office and information that they released, 
They have nine acute care hospitals in Queens to serve about 2.3 million people, which factors into a ratio that's much less compared to other boroughs. So for, for Queens, the ratio of beds to 1,000 people is less than two, whereas it's more than two in other boroughs. So what the, the acting Queens borough president, Sharon Lee, likes to say is that um, it, Queens is is underbedded compared to other places. So this is something that um, it makes sense could be contributing to the overburdened hospitals like Elmhurst that we're seeing in Queens because there already is a shortage compared to other places in the city and Queens really hasn't gotten um, funding or, or attention in recent years uh, to try and mitigate that. Um, we just have a couple couple minutes left, so I wanted to shift a little bit and just talk about you and your, your career here a bit because I think one thing about our current media landscape in New York City is that there are really amazing, talented journalists working for publications that don't necessarily get the same recognition as larger organizations. We have Maya here, who has been consistently killing it with Patch for more than a year now. So how, how did you get started with Patch? I've been reporting on, on New York City for a couple years now, and I grew up here. And it's a place that is really close to my heart. I love to learn more about the city and get information out. And in Queens, there are a lot of community reporters and community publications who are really dedicated to that same cause because Queens has such a diversity of issues. There's a lot going on. I mean, it's the epicenter of, of this crisis right now. The stats have been showing for several days now that, that COVID is is impacting Queens the most of, of the rest of New York City. So it's a great place to report. Um, I like to do basically hyper-local stories and angles that you don't get um, as much as from other publications because we're on the ground here. I'm speaking to you from Queens right now. I live around the corner from one of the hospitals that I report on, um, and it's a it's a more community-driven perspective because people are really seeking out information now more than ever about about what's going on in their neighborhoods, and so that's the kind of reporting that I'm really dedicated to providing. Well, we're fortunate to have you here covering Queens. We're fortunate to have you covering New York City. How can people find out more about you? Follow you on, on Twitter. Uh, visit your website. You can follow me on Twitter at Maya Koff, um, and patch.com. You can search your local neighborhood on Patch. We have pages for various neighborhoods across Queens and the entire city. It's free, and we send out a daily email newsletters to share our reporting. So I encourage everyone to, to follow that to get a hyper-local perspective on what's happening right now. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us today on City Watch. We look forward to seeing your, your reporting coming up this week and seeing what you do next. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That was an interview I recorded yesterday with Queens Patch reporter Maya Kaufman, a great journalist and a friend of mine. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's City Watch, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand, joined by my co-host, Jeff Simmons, and news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston.
Maya and I both cover Queens. I'm managing editor of the Queens Daily Eagle, Queens only daily print newspaper. So she and I stay connected pretty regularly. We talked about how the overcrowding and issues at Elmhurst Hospital may be starting to hit other hospitals as well. And I, I know Maya has been talking with several other hospital staffers to learn the situation there. That's something I've also been reporting on during the COVID-19 crisis, and it's startling. I've talked with a few doctors at Jamaica Hospital who said five of the buildings, six floors are now devoted to treating COVID-19 patients who are, quote, flooding the hospital, as one physician put it. A video posted on social media the other day shows the extent of the crowding with gurneys packed together in the ER leading to a hallway. I spoke with staff at six hospitals in New York City on Friday, and three of them told me they were sick. The other three had several colleagues who were sick, including at least seven nurses on just two units at NYU Langone in Manhattan. One provider who talked with me on the phone right after getting her own COVID-19 test said she had a fever and aches, and so did her mom and her husband. But she said something really powerful that captures the spirit of our healthcare workers. This is her quote. I took an oath to help, and this is it. If I'm positive, maybe I'm in better shape to help after this, she said. She meant that overcoming the illness may mean she has an immunity and can get right back to work. Another provider who was still feeling well told me that she felt like she was a soldier getting called into duty. She said her family keeps asking why she doesn't stay home, and she said she has a moral responsibility to care for people in need. And that's a pretty powerful perspective. While many of us have stayed home under orders from the city and state, tens of thousands of New Yorkers have continued to show up for work every day. There are doctors and nurses on the front lines, of course, and then there are countless other essential workers who keep our city running and ensure our neighbors in need have a place to stay and food to eat. Barbara Hughes and her team are just a few of those workers. Barbara runs the City Beat Kitchen in Brooklyn's Industry City. It's a program operated by social service organization Project Renewal that prepares and distributes meals to other nonprofit agencies, including homeless shelters. Hughes oversees 65 workers, many of whom have experienced homelessness themselves. They show up to their industrial kitchen each day despite the outbreak. I talked with Barbara Friday about the work. Barbara Hughes, welcome to City Watch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Project Renewal has more than 65 staff members showing up to work at your City Beat Kitchens in Brooklyn to prepare meals for people at shelters, drop-in centers, and other nonprofit sites around the city. Tell us more about the workforce. Well, our workforce are mostly folks who have come through our culinary training program, which we have been operating for over 20 years. Uh, not everybody, but most people have been trained by us in uh, food service. And uh, there are those that uh, go after they graduate from our six-month program, go out and get jobs in the restaurant industry, corporate dining, other food service um, sites. But many want to work with our company because they want to stay in our family. Um, there are people uh, who... We're incarcerated, some for short times, some for long times, uh, and uh, get out of um, out of uh, their uh, the the system and want training in culinary uh, because maybe they've done some of that uh, work in the prison system. Um, there are people that are uh, formerly homeless, people that have been in the shelter system, people that can't afford to go to culinary school but want training. Um, all sorts of folks um, like that, and uh, uh, we're offering that training without people having to pay for it. And uh, they get a certificate. We're a licensed school, and um, 
uh, we go from there and do job placement, by the way. Barbara Hughes, welcome to CityWatch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Project Renewal has more than 65 staff members showing up to work at your City Beat Kitchens in Brooklyn to prepare meals for people at shelters, drop-in centers, and other nonprofit sites around the city. Tell us more about the workforce. Well, our workforce are mostly folks who have come through our culinary training program, which we have been operating for over 20 years. Uh, not everybody, but most people have been trained by us in uh, food service. And uh, there are those that uh, go after they graduate from our six month program, go out and get jobs in the restaurant industry, corporate dining, other food service um, sites, but many want to work with our company because they want to stay in our family. Um, there are people uh, who were incarcerated, some for short times, some for long times, uh, and uh, get out of um, out of uh, their uh, the the system and want training in culinary uh, because maybe they've done some of that uh, work in the prison system. Um, there are people that are uh, formerly homeless, people that have been in the shelter system, people that can't afford to go to culinary school but want training, um, all sorts of folks um, like that. And uh, uh, we're offering that training without people having to pay for it. And uh, they get a certificate. We're a licensed school, and um, uh, we go from there and do job placement, by the way. So how has the work changed over the past couple of weeks, especially now that so many other businesses have shut down and I'm sure places depend depend on what you're doing? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, I've... I found this phenomenon to happen uh, during other situations we've had of crisis, 9-11, uh, Hurricane Sandy, the blackout in New York City, the recent one. Um, this is where our folks step up. They understand that people have to be fed. And the people we're feeding, we are feeding are people that um, – They've been in the shoes of, so to speak. Um, they've been in the shelter system where we have most of our clients that are being fed. They've been homeless. Um, they understand that those people have to be fed and they're just as important as the people who are staying in their apartments and ordering from uh, a food delivery service and don't have to go out and have enough money to uh, spend on that. So they are very aware of that. and. The passion they have for stepping up and and keeping going, even though this is a very anxious time. And I, I've spent so much of my time over the past two weeks just being a cheerleader, checking in on everybody, making sure they're doing what they need to do, making sure they have the equipment they need, which is which is sparse. But I mean, we have lots of gloves. We have lots of sanitizers. Um, we don't have masks, which would help, especially with the morale of my staff, but they're doing what they have to do. They're getting on the train. They're coming to work. Um, we're, we're operating some of our food service in Brooklyn. People come from the Bronx in the morning to cook. Um, so they're, it's just an amazing um, operation. Have any of them? Uh, tested positive for COVID-19 or showing symptoms and, and staying home? 
I hate to even say this out loud, but we have not had anyone um, have symptoms, test positive, who are working for City Beat Kitchens right now. I, I hope that that doesn't happen. The odds are it probably will. We are prepared. Project Renewal is prepared to deal with whatever situation it is. I've got um, my uh, employment coordinator for our culinary training program working with people who graduated from our program who have been laid off uh, in a waiting kind of situation where uh, I have people to cover if somebody feels sick because immediately if somebody feels any symptoms, we're going to send them home. Um, it, it might even be that they're, they're having some anxiety from doing this, and there's a lot of pressure around this. Yeah. Uh, from, from me to the pot washer and everybody in between and our drivers. Uh, so um, we're prepared. What are, what are some of the places you serve? Many of our customers are other nonprofits like Project Renewal who do um, uh, who run some of the shelters in the city. Uh, one of our largest customers is Help USA. We uh, we cater to seven shelters of theirs. We do three meals a day for them. Uh, and another big client is Breaking Ground, a well-known uh, nonprofit in the city. We do five programs for them. Three of them are shelters. In the breaking ground shelters, we also provide people to serve their food. So um, we're we're in a lot of uh, of the big nonprofits. We also have an account with Volunteers of America, and then other smaller programs around the city. Has there been any disruption to your supply chain of getting the food that you need to prepare and and then distribute? So far, the supply chain is fine. Uh, we're we're not having any problems. I'm checking in with our vendors all the time. There seems to be um, plenty of supply. Uh, of course, what we do, um, I mean, and we're required to do, and we've done even more of it, is supply all of our accounts with some emergency food. So if there was a blip or if there was a problem, they would have some food on their site that they could um, get by with for um, most of them for seven days. Uh, oh. But we don't expect that to happen. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to check in on on a daily basis, on a moment to moment basis. But so far, so good. Um, are any of the staff members currently experiencing homelessness? You know, I don't know offhand, but many, many of our staff members are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm. I mean, they're the lucky ones that have jobs. Um, we're paying everybody uh, full time um, uh, with benefits. Um, so they've they've kept working. Today's payday. Everybody's going to get a paycheck. Uh, and you know, everybody's living on the edge. These are the people at the bottom. These are people that are making um Luckily for New York City, minimum wage at $15 an hour, but you're also in New York City, which is more expensive. So um, every everybody's on that edge, I would say. People at the edge, you mentioned that uh, there are no masks for them at this point. Um, what do you think of how the city and state are serving homeless New Yorkers or serving New Yorkers who are on the edge right now? Well, I certainly know that the city is... Um, constantly in touch with um, 
our leadership team at Project Renewal, and I think they're doing the best that they can. Uh, we we are we have certainly done a lot within the agency to try to collect the kind of equipment we need to to um, maintain our buildings. Um, to operate our medical team. Um, we certainly don't have enough of those things, which are the right kind of masks to have. Um, you know, I went to our main kitchen yesterday and everybody was in a mask, but they're the masks that uh, people wear that are in um, like the, uh, you know, the manicuring um, businesses and um they're said to not really do too much for protection, although it certainly makes you feel better to have something on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think everybody's doing the best that they can do. Um, and I, I can't really comment on on, you know, the effort as far as where I sit is is 100 percent. What more do you need for your program? Well, we certainly need those masks, and I wish we had them. Um, I got an email from uh, the manager of our catering company this morning saying, we need masks. I called him back, and I said, what about the ones you had on yesterday? He said, yeah, we have those, but we need, you know, we need to have them. We don't want anybody to get sick. We're doing everything that we can do. I mean, we definitely need those. I mean, I, we, I haven't seen a... Um, a wipe in I don't know how long. I've looked for them everywhere. We sort of do makeshift ones on our own. But um, I mean, you know, that's that's the thing I would say we need the most of. And I, this is today. I, I don't know what we'll need two weeks down the line. Um, and I don't know. I don't know where we'll be. So it's that, you know, feeling of the unknown. Yes, the food's going to come in. Yes, we're OK today. But um, I don't know what tomorrow will bring. So for our listeners who maybe have access to that type of equipment or want to know how they can support your program or even get, get involved with your program, where can they go to find information and to contact the program? They can go to our website, projectrenewal.org. Projectrenewal.org. Um, yes. And when, when they're there, what can they do to either find out they, more or to they can find out more information they can leave their information we have folks in our development department that will get right back to them and then what they do is disseminate the information they'll let me know if it's somebody that wants to donate something that pertains to what i do uh, with food service programs they'll let the medical team know if there's something to i got a call yesterday um, that was forwarded to me because um, there was a milk company that had been no donating to the Bowery Mission and they're maxed out. They don't have any room to put the milk. Would I take it? We took whatever milk was. We took 50 gallons of milk that they had. So um, it, our, our main office uh, is disseminating all that information and we will get it. And we will get back to whatever person there is that has whatever there is to donate. Great. Uh, what? So we're recording this on Friday morning. What are some of the meals that you'll be preparing today or through the weekend? Well, through the weekend, we're we're right now we're preparing hot lunch for all of our customers. Um, we're going to be feeding all of our shelters at Project Renewal seven uh, seven shelters that we uh, run and other programs. Um, they're going to get three meals a day. Uh, 
Then we start working on the weekend uh, and, um, you know, we just go from there uh, and we're here and we're doing our thing. And I think everybody has to remember that there are people in the shelter system that need to eat. And um, there are people that are, are serving that food and cooking that food and coming to work every day and doing it. Well, Barbara Hughes from Pro- Project Renewal running the City Beat Kitchen in Brooklyn providing food for people in need across the city. Thank you so much for joining us on City Watch. Thanks so much, Dave. To learn more about City Beat Kitchen and the great work they're doing, visit projectrenewal.org and City Beat, that's B-E-E-T, like the red root vegetable. Um, you heard Barbara Hughes say that they don't have many cleaning supplies. They don't have masks, personal protective equipment. They don't have uh, wipes, sanitary wipes, she had mentioned. So if you're someone who is in possession of those items and you would like to contribute, I recommend you check out the program at projectrenewal.org. Earlier in the show, at the very top, we had former Queens District Attorney candidate Tiffany Caban. I had asked her for her perspective on the work of the person who defeated her in the Democratic primary in 2019. That's current Queens DA, Melinda Katz. A few minutes before our show began, Politico reported that Katz had tested positive for COVID-19. A spokesperson told Politico that Katz is doing well and she is continuing to work from home. Some other national news that broke a few minutes ago. Uh, President Trump said the federal government's guidelines for social distancing would continue until April 30th. So he has distanced himself from his original suggestion of repealing those guidelines by Easter. I want to thank our guests guests today. We had Tiffany Caban, journalist Maya Kaufman, and City Beat Kitchen Executive Director Barbara Hughes. Thank you as well to my co-host Jeff Simmons, our news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston, and our engineer Max Schmid. And a special thank you to everyone who turned in, who tuned in today, turned up to listen to our show. Be sure to tune in next week when we will be joined by more amazing guests. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at wbai.org. Go to Programs and then Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. Thanks again for joining us today. Stay inside, stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, and remember we're all in this together. Thank you.